And I'll ask you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts as we continue in a series of messages examining the historical account of the early church given to us by the gospel writer Luke as he uh, so carefully records the events of the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And so as we look at the Acts of the Apostles, uh, certainly uh, these are very important facts and, uh, and, and truths that are important to us 2,000 years later. There's so much that we can learn from what God did in those early believers um, as the church was forming and, and, and advancing and, and the gospel was being spread. Uh, last time, just a, a quick uh, recap, we saw the early church has survived its, its first major attack from within when Judaizers were trying to impose the Mosaic law upon the Gentile believers. This was a big deal. And uh, and so as we look at that and we examine that, we're thankful for the leadership of the Holy Spirit in those elders and apostles in the church of Jerusalem when they called together the very first council of the church to deliberate, is it necessary for those who are Gentile believers in Jesus Christ to be subjected to the constraints of the law? And so in that early church council, we saw where God's Spirit worked through the hearts of, of great men of faith like the Apostle Peter and, and the elder James and other leaders in the church and the Apostle Paul and Barnabas that gathered there to deliberate upon this. You might say that the, the mother church of Jerusalem came forth with a resounding resounding message that, that reverberated not only just there but throughout the kingdom and down through the ages. And that message has everything to do with the essence of the gospel. As we know it, and as we have believed it, and as we propagate it even in our culture today. And that simply is the message that came out of that early church conference in Jerusalem was, salvation comes only by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Not by works, not by the efforts of man, but purely by grace through faith. And so, as we move forward, beginning in chapter 15, verse 30, picking up with where we left off, we see basically a dilemma resolved. A major dilemma that has been resolved as the church council's decision uh, is now being sent back to the church at Antioch, which is primarily made up of Gentiles, And so they are sending this delegation made up of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and two elders from the church in Jerusalem as representatives to go with them to take this letter that has been written by James the elder, the leader of the church, along with the Apostle Peter, this letter back to the church at Antioch in Syria to give the council's report. And so as we look at this developing here, beginning in verse 30, we see the Gentile church rejoices with this report. Begin reading with me in verse 30, chapter 15 of Acts. So when they were sent off, talking about this delegation, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, not just the church leaders, but everybody, the whole congregation, everybody affiliated with the church, when they gathered the whole multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. And I I think it's important that we see that that coming out of the hearts of the leaders and the people uh, of the church in Antioch. 
Verse 32, now Judas and Silas, those were the two elders from Jerusalem that went along with Barnabas and, and the apostle Paul. When, now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets also, exhorted the brethren with many words and strengthened them. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. So, first of all, we see the Gentile churches rejoicing over the good news that has been sent through this report, through this letter to them. Think about how relieved they are at the, to, to be able to have the apostles' blessings and fellowship. To get a letter from the church in Jerusalem, which, I, I, like I said, is the mother church, it's the lead church, it's the church that will determine doctrine and direction of the church overall. And to have received this wonderful letter that, that, that reinforces their idea of the gospel being by grace through faith and not by the law. Oh, what a relief it was to those early believers there at Antioch. Not only the blessings from the, uh, the apostles, but also that extension of fellowship. You may recall in the letter, we looked at it earlier in chapter 15, the apostles and the elders, in writing that letter, they didn't just say, hey, you Gentiles or Gentile believers. They said, brethren, brothers, you're equal with us. We're one family. There's no division in the body of Christ Though there are Jewish Christians and there are Gentile Christians, we're all brothers and sisters in the Lord. So what a relief it must have been. And, and I tried to put myself in the position, and you do, do the same. Try to put yourself in the position. They sent Barnabas and, and, and the Apostle Paul down to Jerusalem. And folks, they didn't have fast transportation. They didn't have mass communication. They didn't have ways of, of, of being able to follow on television or newspapers, you know, wh what was developing. So it must have appeared almost like an eternity to the church in Antioch while they sent that delegation. It took them a long time to get down there. It took a while for the deliberations to take place. And then it took a while for them to get back. So it must have seemed like an eternity to the church at Antioch of Syria as they waited to hear from Jerusalem. And in their minds, they're wondering, what's it going to be? Is it going to be the law? Or will it be grace? Maybe all the men of the church at Antioch, Syria, were wondering, well, when this team gets back, does that mean we've all got to be circumcised? Maybe all of the women in the church were thinking, boy, you know, when the delegation gets back from, from Jerusalem, does that mean we've got to learn how to cook kosher all of a sudden? Or maybe as a population of believers there in the church of uh, Antioch, they were wondering, does this mean that every one of us are now going to be living under the, re the restrictions of the, the Mosaic Law? So you can imagine when they finally received the good news, resoundingly, the apostles sent this message to the believers, the Gentile believers, no, you don't have to abide by the law. No, your salvation is not dependent upon the things you do, the works you do. But it's purely by the grace of God and through your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a relief that must have been. But not only that, they were reaffirmed in the validity of their salvation. You see, the Apostle Paul and, and Barnabas and others that had come up from the church in Jerusalem that were, that were sharing the gospel, spreading the gospel up into that Gentile region, they came preaching a message. They didn't say, look, you've got to obey the laws of Moses. They didn't say, first of all, you've got to be circumcised. They simply said, 
If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you shall be saved. It's by the grace of God that this invitation is extended to you. It's by your faith, your genuine, life-committing faith in Jesus Christ. You come into the kingdom and the Gentiles took them at their word. And now this letter comes to reaffirm, oh yes, the salvation that you have cherished from the day that you prayed to receive Jesus Christ. This wonderful relationship that you have enjoyed with God through faith in Christ since the day you prayed to receive Christ. It's real. It's genuine. It's authentic. It has the blessings of the church of Jerusalem. Your salvation is just as real as the salvation of any of the Jewish Christians out there. And so what a, what a great relief to have their faith uh, so validated by the church in Jerusalem. You know, it's tragic when I think about sects of, of, of Christians or groups of Christianity that attempt to add to the gospel by imposing legalistic ideas that maybe somebody subjectively came up with that they think in order for you to really be a Christian, you've got to be able to do this, do this and do that or look like this or talk like this. As if adding to the gospel makes it more authentic. Or on the other end of the spectrum, those libertines that are out there in Christendom that somehow feel like even just the gospel as we know it, the true gospel is maybe just a little bit too restrictive. And so they will extract from the, from the true gospel something as key as repentance of sins. As if, as if to suggest that, well, listen, you can be saved. You know, you don't really have to turn your back on all your sins. You know, repentance is absolutely not, not absolutely necessary to just, just believe in Jesus. So you see the danger of adding to or taking away from the biblical gospel. And that's why the letter from the church at Jerusalem was so essential to those early believers there at Antioch and what, how they rejoiced and what a relief it was. But you know, there was an added benefit in this delegation coming up from Jerusalem to the early church there in Syria, Antioch of Syria. Because as I shared, there were two delegates that came along with them that were leaders in the church at Jerusalem. Judas and Silas. And so as we look at these two men, and, and as Luke records there, beginning in verse 32, it says, Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets, also exhorted the brethren with many words and strengthened them. Now, consider this. God knows what He's doing. When He put that delegation together, He knew that these two men would play a significant role in the delegation coming back to the church at Antioch. Number one, they would serve a purpose of validation. Because you see, their very presence, along with Paul, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, their presence would basically validate everything in that letter. Because they would say, we're eyewitnesses. We were there with Paul. We were there with Barnabas. We were in that council. We heard James say this. We heard the Apostle Peter stand up and, and give his glowing testimony of how God had used him to reach the Gentiles through Cornelius. Oh, we heard all the affirmation of the church. We, we are here to testify to you that everything that Paul and Barnabas is saying and everything that this letter has, has said to you is absolutely true. So their purpose in being there 
was one of validation, but then that wasn't at all. That wasn't all. Because as you see what Luke says in verse 32, these two leaders in the church in Jerusalem also were gifted men. As leaders in the church and all leaders in churches across the land have spiritual gifts, but guess what? All God's children got gifts. That's poor English, but it's a fact. Every believer is bestowed by the Spirit of God with spiritual gifts that God intends to use in the body of Christ to strengthen the church. And so it was with Silas and Judas. Because we see that not only were they there to validate the message of the letter, but they also were there to exercise the spiritual gifts that God had given to them. They specifically, Luke said, had the gift of prophecy. Now, oftentimes we think about prophecy as being, having the ability to speak into the future. And there were great men of faith that had that gift to be able to prophesy, like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel and others. But the, 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 the gift of prophecy was the ability to speak forth a word of God from the word of God to the people of God. And that's exactly what they were doing. These two men fanned out into the church and they began to, to preach and to exhort and to encourage and to, to, to inspire and to inform. And oh, oh, listen, they took advantage of their time up there to use that gift to help that church at, at Antioch. What a blessing it was. They could have just come up there and validated the letter and said, now we're going to sit back and y'all wait on us and, 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 and take care of us and accommodate us and then we're going back home. Oh no, listen, here's the beauty of the spiritual gifts. When, when you are gifted, and if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you do have spiritual gifts. Maybe not prophecy. Generally, prophecy is given to those who lead the church and are leading the church in the Word of God, typically your elders. But, but not just confined to that. Sometimes teachers will have the gift of prophecy. Speak forth the Word. But let me just say this. Your gift may be the gift of encouragement. Your gift may be the gift of uh, exhortation. You may have the gift of administration. We do. We have people in the church, thank God, that have these gifts. And they are exercising the... You may have the gift of mercy. And that's very important in the, in the body of Christ to help the body to be sensitive to the needs of people in the church. You may have the gift of giving. And Mr. Cash in the Finance Committee says, praise God, we need more of those. But these are people that just get hilariously excited about giving to, to the kingdom causes. They, they're spiritual cheerleaders to cheer, to, to cheer the church on, to encourage the church to be generous and giving. Oh, listen, there, there are a number of, of, of gifts that God distributes within the body of Christ. But let me tell you something. The purpose of the spiritual gifts is not to bring glory to you. The, the purpose of the spiritual gifts are not so that you can sit back and say, oh, aren't I something? You know, I've got the gift of mercy. I've got the gift of gift. No, no. The purpose of the gifts, if you go back and read in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, you'll find that the purpose of the spiritual gifts are for the edification of the body, for the building up of the body of Christ. And you say, well, wait a minute. Judas and Silas were not in Jerusalem. You're right. They weren't in their home church. But they were in the presence of the body of Christ. And so what I want to do is challenge you as a church member, all of us, that we be conscious of the gift that God has given to us. And if you have trouble coming up on that, we have some tools that can help you, like spiritual gift surveys. We've done that with most of the members of our church. And, and then be aware that if God has given you a gift that to be used to help this church, then you need to be exercising it. You need to be using it. To, to not exercise your spiritual gift in the midst of the body of Christ is a horrible, selfish thing. 
Because you're depriving that which could be helping the church to thrive and to be stronger and to be better. And, and not only when you're here. If you're active as a Christian in the kingdom of God, God's going to take you out beyond the walls of this church. And we have missionaries getting ready to be sent up to Tennessee as Nathan and Haley are getting ready to pack and, and go and pursue a call in ministry up there. But guess what? They won't leave their spiritual gifts here. We've benefited from them. But do you know what? They'll take those spiritual gifts and when God plants them in that church up there in Johnson City, Tennessee, they'll be exercising those gifts for the benefit and the blessing and the edification of that church. Now, even when God takes you temporarily somewhere else in the midst of the body of Christ, some of you have gone on missions trips, international missions trips, short-term missions trips to other parts of this country, or, or maybe on a, a, a missions venture, or maybe go to a, a Christian conference, or go to a Christian convention, or, or maybe be invited to another church to, 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 to teach or something like that. Listen, wherever you go and you find yourself in the midst of the body of Christ, be ready. Just as Silas and Judas were to use your gifts wherever God's people are gathered together, however God has gifted you, be willing to use that gift for the benefit of that church in which you find yourself in the midst of. And that's what Judas and Silas did, and it enhanced the life of the church there in Antioch of Syria. Verse 33, and after they had stayed there for a time, they, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. So a letter went back, more than likely. To Peter and James and the others, the other apostles, the leaders of the church of Jerusalem. Now, an interesting thing. Some of you probably do not have verse 34 in your Bible. Some of you will. Verse 34 simply says, however, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Now, if your, your translation does not hold that verse in there, don't be alarmed. You're not getting cheated. Most of the reliable manuscripts... Do not have verse 34, and so, and the more contemporary versions don't, simply because it is believed by biblical scholars to not have come from a more trusted manuscript. In fact, it was believed that later a, a scribe inserted verse 34 for a purpose. To, to, to rationalize the difference between verse 33 and then verse 40. Verse 33 says that, that, uh, Judas and Silas went back to Jerusalem. However, in verse 40, you'll find that Silas is still there because Paul, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, because Paul is going to choose Silas to be his traveling companion in, in the missions venture. And so the scribe was probably thinking, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's got to be an error somehow. We've got, we got to explain how it is that Silas was supposed to be going back to Jerusalem and then yet there he is to be selected by the Apostle Paul. But really, there is no conflict. There is no contradiction because upon closer examination of the context of the letter and the time period, there was plenty of time. There was plenty of time to transpire between Silas and Judas going back to Jerusalem, delivering the letter, the greeting, and then Silas returning to Antioch of Syria, whereby he would be selected by Paul to continue. So you see things like that and sometimes you say, oh my goodness, that means the Bible's not true. <laughs> Folks, listen, there, there is no other document ever published in the history of mankind that has the sub substantial evidence of its validity like the Scriptures. Nothing, nothing. There are more manuscripts or portions of manuscripts that support the Bible you hold in your hand 
than there are of some of the most famous writings that have been published down through the history of man. But this just simply allows that somewhere along the way, yes, a scribe could have become a little bit more zealous. But enough about that. Just wanted to just address that little um, <laughs> apparent error there so that some people would understand why some people's translations have it and some do not. Moving on, because now we see that the that that as as the 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 story unfolds with the kingdom of God advancing, that the uh, dilemma has been resolved, and once the dilemma has been resolved in the life of the church, a mission is revived. A mission is revived. I take your attention to verse thirty-five, where we'll pick up there. In verse thirty-five: Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. With many others also. Now, I, I would uh, help you to understand. Paul was called by the Lord to be a missionary. Paul was called by the Lord to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And, and, and as a missionary, he would be moving all across the kingdom of God. All across the region, particularly areas where Gentiles resided. But also, when, when given the opportunity, as the case here... At uh, Antioch of Syria, Paul and Barnabas functioned as pastors. This was a new church. It was getting started. They, they, they helped the church through teaching. They helped the church through election of leaders. They helped the church in getting established in solid doctrine. And so they were functioning at this time as, as pastors or elders of this church. But, but they, they never, never lost their distinct call of being missionaries. Now, once the church has, has weathered this first doctrinal storm related to the essence of the gospel, and that dilemma has been resolved, then the Spirit of God begins to stir back up in them that missionary calling. So after Silas and Judas have departed and, and, and Paul and Barnabas are spending time, they're teaching, they're preaching, they're, they're helping the church. But you'll notice something there at the end of that, of that verse 35. And it says, and with many others also. You see, Paul and Barnabas, I believe, were, were preparing the church at Syria, Antioch of Syria. And they were sharing their responsibilities as pastors. They were, they were sharing their pastoral roles. And how did they do that? Through recruiting other elders to assist them in church growth. The church was growing. We saw that in Acts chapter 11 verse 24. It says that God was adding multitudes to the number. Listen, with that church growing and Gentiles coming. And you better believe once the word got out. That the Jerusalem church had clarified that, listen, you don't have to be uh, abide by the law to be truly saved. It's by grace through faith. Listen, once that word got out, then that fanned the fires of evangelism. Because the Gentiles were saying, yeah, you better believe it. Had, had the church in Jerusalem given a different direction... In other words, said, said, now look, Gentiles, we want you to be a part of the body of Christ, but you've got to come by the law and abide by the restrictions of the law, da-da-da-da-da. That would have put a cold, damp rag on evangelism, I promise you. Because it would have probably tempered a lot of the enthusiasm of some of the Gentiles to even want to be a part of the body of Christ. But now that the word is out, that is by grace through faith. Listen, I believe that God was growing the church there exponentially. And Paul and Barnabas realized this. And they were probably recruiting by the leadership of the Holy Spirit men to serve as elders alongside of them. And I really believe that the purpose that they were doing that is they were preparing the church for their inevitable departure. They knew they would be leaving. 
God was beginning to stir back up that, that, that call to missions. And so they were preparing the church to go on without them. Once they left, they would have leaders. They would have qualified leaders. This is not a unique happening. If you, as we look further, as we go through the book of Acts, as we follow the Apostle Paul in his missionary journeys, you'll find that wherever he, he preaches the gospel, he's planting churches. Wherever he's planting churches, he's teaching the churches. And, and this is called biblical uh, evangelism or, or biblical missions, if you will. Because Paul realizes it does no good to preach the gospel and then take off to the next town, set up a tent and preach the gospel and set up a tent and go to the next. Listen, he realized the importance of, of establishing the church there to, to be able to feed, to nurture the new believers. And he also had the wisdom to realize that it's no good to set up a church if you're not going to take time to help that church to, to discover its leaders, its God-given leaders, and to train those leaders to be able to lead the church. So what, what they were doing at Antioch of Syria, they would continue to do throughout their missionary journeys along the way. But the thing is, they were preparing the church for their inevitable departure. You know, I think it's a shameful and a sinful thing when an ego-driven pastor seeks to satisfy his own twisted sense of self-importance by making the church totally dependent upon him. As if the church can't do anything without the pastor having his hand in it. And so that, you know, the whole idea is that you create a, a very un, unscriptural, very unhealthy dependence upon that one man. So that just at the very thought of the pastor leaving creates shockwaves of panic in the church. Oh my goodness. And I've seen it happen, folks. I've seen brothers in the ministry guilty of that very sin. To build up their sense of self-importance, they make the church absolutely dependent upon them. A very wise and godly pastor early in my ministry pulled me aside and he says, Charlie, you need to know something very clear. If you're going to be faithful to the Lord, then you need to know that as God grows the church that He calls you to, you need to always be working to prepare that church that if God for some reason called you away or if something happened and you were at, taken from that church in an instant, the church could carry on effectively as if you were still there. And he said the way you do that is you make sure you invest yourself in developing godly leaders to lead that church. And I am so thankful to God that, you know, I have that peace. That if something were to happen to me, if, I, if God were to call me away from Cornerstone in an instant, that you wouldn't miss a beat. Because of the leadership that God has raised up in this church. Listen, every pastor needs to have that peace. Every pastor needs to have that assurance. Not only that, every church needs to have that assurance. And peace. And that's what Paul and Barnabas were doing to prepare the church at Antioch of Syria so that when they departed, that church would continue on teaching the Word of God, preaching the Word of God, ministering to the community, reaching out and bringing people in and continuing to guide the people in strong biblical doctrine. Now, verse 36, we see then, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the Word of the Lord and see how they're doing. So there's that longing that God has put in, in, in Paul's heart. Listen, it's been a while 
Since they made that first missionary journey to Cyprus and on up into uh, Asia Minor and visiting uh, the, the places of Antioch uh, uh, there and um, and then also in Pisidia and then Lystra and Derby and those places. And, and so now Paul is saying to Barnabas, you know what? It's time. It's time to, to resume the work that God first started. And, and so the Lord is reigniting that call to missions in their hearts. To go and to evangelize and start churches and grow disciples and, and, and grow leaders. And to return to the responsibility of expanding the kingdom of God. I thank God for, for missionaries. I, I, I guess my mother was very in, in, instrumental in, in causing me to have a deep love for missions. She was the WMU leader in our church back then. It was a little country church. But I'm going to tell you something. They love missions and they love missionaries. And it, not a December would roll around that we... Listen, I thought Lottie Moon was a member of the family. And you know, and heaven forbid if, you, if the preacher should forget to emphasize Lottie Moon. I, I'd hate to see what would have been happening between him and my mom. But, but she loved missionaries. She was always teaching us missionary stories. She was telling us the importance of supporting missionaries and how important it was. And I have a deep love for missionaries. I think about those great missionaries of old, like J. Hudson Taylor of the 19th century, a, a, a man of God who had such a burning passion in his heart for the lost of China. And how it just so burdened his heart that, that millions of Chinese were dying without the, the truth of the gospel and, 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 and going off into a Christless eternity. And how he sacrificed his life in bringing the gospel. Listen, he's just one of many. Lottie Moon. Another one sacrificed her life, starved her, herself to death during the famine of China, feeding the hungry children and families with her own food so that she could continue to tell them about Jesus. Oh, listen, we've got some outstanding men and women out there on the field today. We had one young lady right here at our church not too long ago who shared her passion to take the gospel to West Africa. And we continue to pray for Amy Basto-Cox as she's there in West Africa now. Doing just that in a predominantly Muslim area of the world. She's, she's disregarding the, the potential threats to her life and potential threats of Ebola just ways away from her. Listen, why? Because she loves the Lord. She loves the gospel. She has a heart that burns to see the gospel go to all the nations of the world. And that was the that was the fire that burned in in Barnabas's heart and Saul uh, Paul's heart. We see a dilemma resolved. We see a mission revived. But then, this might be instructive and encouraging for churches today, because this section deals with conflict. Now, I know some of you try to avoid conflict with the passion, and I, I don't cherish the idea and relish the idea, but let me just say, conflict is inevitable in humanity. So, with that in mind, we look now, beginning in verse 37, at a strategy revised. A strategy revised. Because Paul has said, we need to get back on the mission field, and Barnabas is saying, you're right, you're right, Paul. But, verse 37... Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. And we'll just call him John Mark. And you may remember 
that back in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, John Mark, Barnabas' cousin, was traveling with Barnabas and Paul. And just as they were at a critical point to enter into Asia Minor to take the gospel into a very dangerous and geographically rugged pagan area, this young man that was their assistant, well, for lack of words, he hightailed it. Uh, Barnabas being the encourager, encourager and the comforter probably says, well, he was just a little bit overwhelmed and he needed to go back home to be encouraged. Paul says, the rat, he deserted us or something like that. So now all of a sudden they're getting ready to embark upon missionary journey number two. And Barnabas says, I, I, I agree, Paul, we need to get back out there, but I want to take John Mark with us. He's back up here with us, and, you know, he is my cousin, and, and, and he's a good fellow. And, folks, it was on. The conflict was on. Verse 38, but Paul insisted that they should not take with, take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. In verse 39, then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. What? Paul and Barnabas breaking up? What? Conflict so strong that these two giants of the faith can't walk together and continue to work together? What? Conflict in the church? <laughs> Wherever you have two people, you always have the potential of conflict. When I was in seminary, Jan and I took a course in how to lead marriage enrichment retreats and to counsel the couples on marriage. And one of the holes, one of the sections that we spent training in was on dealing with conflict. There's not a marriage in the world, ladies and gentlemen, I don't care what kind of face you paint and what kind of image you give, there's not a marriage in the world that is conflict free. You know why? Because where you have two opinions, you always have the potential for some type of conflict. Now, I don't mean that that means that the husband ought to end up beating his wife or vice versa or divorce or, you know. But, but just realize that where you have people coming together in a relationship, there's always the potential for conflict, even in the church. And I say especially in a Baptist church. Simply because of the way that we're organized by polity and, 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 and everybody having opportunity to express their feelings and opinions and it just increases the potential for conflict. Someone said if you ever have two Baptists together, you'll have at least three opinions. And, and, and that's going to inevitably lead to some type of conflict. But the thing that I think that we need to learn from this is that God works through conflict. It doesn't have to be the end of a relationship. It doesn't have to be the end of a, of, of a marriage or, or a church or a mission. In fact, we know that later the Apostle Paul would speak favorably of, of Barnabas, even though Barnabas had gone in a different direction. Hey, listen, we even know that later in the Apostle Paul's ministry, he even called for John Mark to come. He, he spoke very encouragingly and, 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 and affirmingly of, of John Mark. And of course, John Mark went on to write one of the Gospels. God works through all circumstances. Romans 8.28 tells us, For God causes all things to work together to good to those who are called 
by the Lord, who, are, who love the Lord and who are called by the Lord. And, and God is working here. He's not done. Hey, listen, the mission's endeavor doesn't fall apart. You'll notice the church in Antioch at Syria didn't split. But, but what we see happening here is that this conflict threatened, at least for a moment, the advancement of that mission. So what do they do? In verse 39, Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. You remember on the first missionary journey, that's where Paul and Barnabas began their first missionary journey. They went to Cyprus. This was Barnabas' hometown. And this is where he grew up. And so from, we don't, from this point on, in the book of Acts, Barnabas drops off the scene. We don't hear anything else about him. But we know that's where he went. Church tradition helps us to understand that his work in Cyprus was fruitful. And as I said, Paul commended him. But the fact is, he went in a different direction from Paul. And he took Mark with him. Now comes Silas back on the scene. I believe in the time that transpired from the, the, the first uh, council in Jerusalem until this point, Silas has made a trip back to Jerusalem, delivered the greeting, felt called to come back to, to um, Antioch of Syria. And, and there it says in verse 40, but Paul chose Silas and departed being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. The conflict did not disrupt the advancement of the kingdom of God. And that's important for us to understand. We can have our differences. We can have our conflict. You don't, you don't attack people when your, your opinions are strong. It's not about destroying relationships. It's about keeping our eyes on the main thing. And that is the work of God. And the kingdom of God. And have our differences. Come to our different opinions and our different ideas. But continue in the work of the Lord as Paul was doing here. But it involved a revision. It's no longer Paul and Barnabas. But it's now Paul and Silas. And that's the way it will be for the remainder of the book of Acts. As we move into chapter 16, I want you to see something that's significant. Because as they continue, as Paul launches out on his second missionary journey, you'll remember before in the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas were traveling from west to east. This time they're, they're, they're taking an opposite um, approach. They're heading in the opposite direction. They're going east to west. They're starting at the last places that they, they, they preached to and planted churches, and they're working their way back towards the first. Why? Because God ordained it that way. Because God had a purpose in, in doing that. And you'll see that right here. Then he came to Derby and Lystra, which were the two last places that they visited. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. So we know from this that Timothy was, uh, had a dad who was a Greek, uh, uh, not, a, not a believer from all indications, but his mom was a believer. How did she become a believer? Through the Apostle Paul. How did Timothy become a believer? By, through his mother. Or he may have heard Paul preaching and, and, and chose to accept Jesus Christ. But here God is raising up this young disciple for a purpose. Look at verse 2. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him. 
And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. Some people said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't the council just say you don't have to come under the, the law to be a Christian? That's right. Later, Paul would select Titus. Titus was not Jewish by origin. He was Gentile. Paul never pursued having Titus circumcised. It wasn't necessary. But he understood this. In the Jewish tradition, if a, if a, if a child, if a young man has a Greek father or Gentile father and a Jewish mother, he is reckoned in the community of the Jewish believers to be Jewish. And you remember, remember when Paul goes into a town, what does he do? Where's the first place he starts? The synagogue, where the Jews are. He understood the importance that his team be recognized by the Jews. That it wouldn't be a stumbling block. And see, every Jew knew that Timothy's mother was Jewish. If Timothy proceeded as a Christian and, and was working with Paul and came into the midst of a predominantly Jewish environment such as a synagogue, and people began to ask him, well, son, uh, you know, you're not, uh, I hear you're not circumcised, yet you are Jewish. What's the problem? It would be a stumbling block. Now, that says a lot about Timothy. Because I'm assuming as a young man, he didn't have to be circumcised. But because of his faith in the Lord and his trust in the Apostle Paul, he understood the, 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 the uh, significance of allowing himself to be circumcised so that he himself would not be a stumbling block to those that they would be attempting to reach. And that's why that's inserted in there. That was an important thing. In verse 4, And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and the elders at, at Jerusalem. So now as Paul and Barnabas, or I got to get used to saying Silas, as Paul and Silas are revisiting all of these churches where they planted the gospel, started churches, established leaders, they're bringing the letter with them. Because it's important that, that the whole body of Christ be on the same page. That they understand that these are the, remember James had said to the Gentile believers, you're not under the law. But I will direct you not to do anything that would be offensive to Jewish believers, such as eating meat from idols or eating meat that has blood, things like that. He says, be sensitive to that. And, and I believe that Paul and Silas shared that with the Christians, the Gentile Christians, as they went, so that the church would continue to be unified, so that the church would continue to be strong. And this is how... Luke ends this section here. Verse 4, And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Why were the churches increasing? Why were the churches getting stronger? Because they had leadership who were, who were committed to the Word of God. They had leadership who were committed to integrity. And that's what happens in the church today. If we want our, our church to, to increase, if we want our church to be strong, it's just as important that we resist the attempts of the culture to influence us away from biblical Christianity and take a, st a strong stand on, on Christian doctrine that is absolutely rock-solid biblical because I believe that is what God recognizes and I believe that's what God honors and I believe that's what God blesses. God may be speaking to your heart today as you look at the example of the Apostle Paul and you see how 
doggedly committed he was to the call that God had put upon his heart. I believe there was nothing in this world to Paul that was more important than being faithful to the Lord. In fact, he says, for me to die is gain. To live is Christ. My life, Paul says, is, is Christ. And you say, but that's the Apostle Paul. Folks, he was human. He was, he was no different than you and me. Not one more drop of the blood of Christ was shed for the Apostle Paul that was shed for you. We are just as obligated before God to be as fervent and to be as faithful in serving the Lord and promoting the gospel and in reaching out in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to those around us as was Paul. My prayer is that we will make that kind of commitment to the Lord to be strong and vigilant in our practice of the faith. Let's pray.